all the ways that God could have chosen to communicate that message to us, he chose to do it in a book. I mean, when you really just stop to think about it, here is the holy creator God who is omnipotent, which means that he holds all power. So here he is with all of the power of the Godhead within him, and what he does to reveal himself and his message to mankind is he takes simple letters of the alphabet that form words written on a page with ink and compiles them together in a book. Now, that's wild. But you need to understand something. This book that we call the Bible is not just a book. Amen? And these are not just words. What this is, is this is the Word of God. And these are the very words of God. And some of you may not fully understand this yet. Because I I, I say that not to to belittle you. Because I'm just telling you, I went years and years and decades of my life without fully understanding the statement I'm about to make. But folks, listen. The most supernatural commodity that is on this planet is this book. I mean, it, it is, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And here we are, sitting here today with it in our own language and, of all things, in our own hands. And, and while we may take that for granted, I want you to know something. That for the last 6,000 years of human history, Most people on this planet lived their entire life and died never, not one time, ever holding the complete revelation of God in their hands. Now, some folks had portions of it. Some, through the centuries, had access to portions of it. But it's only been within the last couple of hundred years. I mean, modern history, where large numbers of people actually were able to hold the, their own copy of the Bible. But, I mean, most of you are holding one today. If you don't have one, there is, there's one provided for you in the, the pew in front of you there. But you know what? Most of you probably have checked this thing out. The Bible is a, it's a big book, isn't it? I mean, in fact, it's comprised of 66 different books. There's 1,189 chapters in this whole thing. 31,173 verses, 773,692 words, and approximately 3,566,480 letters in this thing. And when you stand before God for the final exam, and when I'm talking about the final exam, it's not like what you guys are getting ready to take at school. I'm talking the final exam. Exam And every single one of us will be there. Hebrews 9.27 promises us that we'll all be there for the final exam. And the final exam is going to be, what did you do with the message that God sent to you? And some of you are saying, oh my goodness, man, if that's what the final exam is, I'm never going to make it. I'll never get through this whole thing. I mean, most of the time, I, I, don't, I don't understand the little bit that I do read of it. And I'm going through all of this this morning because I've got great news for you. In the very last book of the Bible, and why don't you turn there, the book of Revelation, 
And we've begun a study of, of this last book. But in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, what God does, now listen very carefully, what He does is He takes this big old Bible with His message that's contained in all 31,173 verses, and listen, He boils it all down and gives us the whole kit and caboodle in five simple verses. Now, Now how about that? I mean, your professor, I mean, you came in and he told you that the he told you that the final exam was going to be covering 773,692 words. You're all freaked out. And then he says, but you know what? Let's change that. The final exam is going to be over 156 words. Now, that's a good deal, isn't it? I mean, to go from three-quarters of a million to 156. And what we've got in this passage is 156 words where God takes His message and He just boils it down into one succinct, all-inclusive package. You know what? I, it is to me, and I was studying this week, and I, I was going through all of this, and it was just like, bang, the lights came on. And I, I got to thinking, I don't know of another place in the Bible where there are five consecutive verses that cover the ground that God covers in, in these. I mean, if you only have, these five verses, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, do you understand? You would virtually have everything you would need in order for God to be able to fulfill His purpose in your life. I mean, if all of a sudden they, they passed a law on this planet, like they've done several times through the centuries, that the Bible is outlawed and nobody can own a Bible. Okay, And so they come into your house one morning, you just happen to be cruising through the book of Revelation, they come into your house to confiscate your Bible, and they jerk this thing out of your hands, and as they're jerking it, you rip out a page, and, and what you got was Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. I want you to know something. You would have virtually every single thing that you would ever really ever need to know about God, about man, about the past, about the present, about the future. I mean, it, it's all right here. And if you, with, with that little bit of the Word of God, you know what? You could take that thing and you could literally turn the world upside down with that little bit. Now, I, I'm, I'm going through all that. I'm hoping that maybe you're going to say, well, let's get into these verses. Let's find out what this, what this thing is, is all about. I mean, if it's this concise, let's get into it. And, and, and let me just say this before we do. Some of you are, are no doubt here this morning, and, and you've been wondering what this whole God and Jesus and the Bible thing really is after all. And man, I'm telling you, I could not have, have picked a day that would be better for you to be here than this, because God's going to give you, bam, the whole deal right here. And for all of the rest of us that, that maybe do understand these verses, you know what this passage is going to do for us? You know how it is after a period of time you start learning all of these things about the Bible and, and sometimes you start getting confused about what it really what people really need to know from God. I mean, you feel like, oh my goodness, i got to tell them this and this and this and this. And what God does is He just says, no, let me just help you to keep it simple. As Paul talked about in the book of 2 Corinthians, not leaving the simplicity that is in Christ. 
And so that's, that's what he gives us in this passage. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Bible but didn't have time to read. Okay, the first thing that John shows us is the gift God wants to give to man. Now listen, if you were to take the Bible and just boil God's overarching, supreme message to man down into its simplest, most basic, all-inclusive form, it would be just that, that God has something that He wants to give to you, and what it is, is grace and peace. But you see, God knows that in order for you to actually receive His grace and peace that He's wanting to give to you, God knows that there's some things that you need to know. If God's gift is ever going to actually become yours, you've got to understand who He is. You've got to understand who you are. You've got to understand what He's done. And you've got to understand what He's going to do. And, and that's what is laid out in a beautiful way in, in this passage. Now look with me, beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace. Now let's just stop there for a second. Let's make sure we got our bearings. First of all, as we saw last week, look back in verse 1, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And verse 1 tells us that the revelation came from God the Father to God the Son through His angel. And, and look at the last part of verse 1, to His servant, John, and as we've seen, this John is the Apostle John, the one referred to in the Gospels as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the disciple who had the most intimate relationship with the Lord during his earthly ministry. Uh, he, he receives this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ somewhere between the years of, of 90 to 96 A.D., which means that at this time in John's life, he is... He is an old man. He is somewhere between 80 and, and 90 years old. And yet, even at that age, would you look at how he's described at the end of verse 1? His, his servant, John. I mean, here, here is John, that disciple who is always where he is supposed to be, that disciple that we talked about during the Last Supper laid his head on, on Jesus' breast, the only disciple that followed all the way through to his crucifixion, he was the last person that Jesus saw before he bowed his head and closed his eyes in death. And at almost 90 years of age, he's still following. He's still faithfully serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of our senior citizens said, Ooh. <laughs> he didn't graduate from that. He never got over who Jesus Christ was in his life. He had to constantly be serving him so verse 4 says john to the seven churches which are in asia now he's going to list the seven churches down in verse 11 and and they were seven literal churches that actually existed historically around 90 a.d in that part of asia actually asia minor what would basically correspond today to our modern turkey and they were seven literal historical Churches, but there's something that you've got to keep in mind when, when you read that, and that's the fact that there were more than seven churches in that part of, of, the, of the world. 
I mean, we know the church of Colossae was right in there, uh, the church at Hierapolis, uh, the church at Troas. All, all of those were right in there. So you've got to ask yourself, why to the seven churches, right? Why not five? Why not six? Why, why not eight? Why, why seven? And if you've been here over the last several weeks as we've been kind of introducing the book of Revelation, we've talked about how God uses the number seven in the Bible and how God just uses the number seven all around us all the time. The number seven in the Bible is the number of completion. It's also the number of perfection. When God wants to complete something, when God wants to show you it in its perfect form, God shows you that in terms of of seven. When he counts, he counts seven, and then it's complete, it's perfect, and he starts over. For example, the days of the week. He counts one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then you come back to the first one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The cells in your body, they change once every seven years. There's a big old piano over here, and it's got all these notes. But you know what? Really, there's only there's only seven. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. What's the next? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Seven notes. It's in, in the, the field of uh, arts. I mean, you take Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and Rembrandt, and do you know that in all of their paintings, they only used seven colors? Now, Gentiles, we don't use seven, do we? What do we use? We use ten, right? We count ten, and then we start over. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then, then the next number is ten plus one. It's eleven, right? And then you get to 19, 20, and then it's 21, 22. And we count over. We get to 100, and then it's 101. And that's 10 times 10, and then 1. You following what I'm saying? We count by 10, but with God, it's 7. And it's all through the Bible. But we've talked about the fact that when you get to the book of the Bible that is going to complete God's perfect revelation to man, God goes absolutely bonkers trying to show you something with with sevens this is a book and we we talked briefly about all of the sevens in the bible but this is a book that is addressed to seven churches in asia minor by him who stands in the midst of seven golden candlesticks from the seven spirits before his throne where there burned seven lamps of fire and it was sent to the seven stars the seven angels of the seven churches there is a seven sealed book which is opened by a lamb having seven horns and seven eyes. Seven seals are open, seven angels seven uh, sound seven trumpets. Seven angels pour out seven golden vials containing the last seven plagues. There is a beast with seven heads, a dragon with seven heads, and seven crowns. There are seven mountains, seven kings, and in all, there's 59 times in the book of Revelation where you find that number seven. And what's interesting is you come to the the very last chapter in the book of the Bible, and you know what? You find the phrase, this book, seven times. Seven. God just keeps wearing you out with, with seven. So, understanding those things, we understand that along with being seven literal historical churches in Revelation 1, 4, They are also representative or typical churches representing a message to the church of Jesus Christ in its truest or most complete sense and and representing seven periods in the history 
of the church, as we'll see as we get into chapters 2 and 3. And, and here is the message of what God has been wanting to get to every man and every woman throughout the last 2,000 years of those seven periods in the history of the church. We've got a message of grace and peace. Now, now check this out. Here is, a, here is a book that deals primarily with judgment. In fact, what you find in the book of Revelation, as God records the final history of all things, is that this book ends with every single person getting what they deserve. For the first time since sin entered into this world, everybody gets exactly what they deserve. For the first time, and you, you only see this, really, in its truest sense, you only see it in the book of Revelation. What you find is that for the first time since man's sin, in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ finally gets what he deserves. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 says, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And John says in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And listen, after 6,000 years of man's rebellion and mockings and scourgings, let me tell you something, that is going to be a glorious day when our God the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ, omnipotent. He comes to this planet and He reigns. But not only does the Lord Jesus Christ get what He deserves, but for the first time since His rebellion, Satan finally gets what he deserves. What you find in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 is the devil being cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and here it is, and he shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I just got to tell you, I can't wait. I just cannot wait for those two things to happen. For Jesus Christ to get what he deserves and for Satan to finally get what he deserves. But that's not all. The book also ends with sinful man finally getting what he deserves. What you see in Revelation is that for the first time since man's rebellion, the, the flood tides of God's wrath upon the wickedness and sinfulness of man finally overflow their banks and they are pouring out in a great fury. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 says, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of God. For the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? In Revelation chapter 14, verses 19 and 20 say, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood 
came out of the winepress even unto the horses' bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Revelation chapter 16, verses 18 through 21. It says, And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven. Every stone about the weight of a talent. Do you understand that we're talking about 100-pound hailstones falling out upon man as God's wrath is finally unleashed and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail for the plague thereof was exceeding great I mean it's just incredible the book is about every person getting exactly what they deserve and yet check it out God begins in verse 4 by telling men that they can have what they don't deserve Grace. And you see, that's what grace is. God giving you what you could never deserve or earn. And you see, folks, what you've got to understand is every single one of us, we deserve hell. Someone says, well, well not me. I, I'm a good person. You may say that. But God says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 12, there is none that doeth good. And God anticipating that we might think of ourselves or we might think of someone that we know as an exception, He says, no, not one. Don't even think about it. Don't even go there. There's none that doeth good. You say, well, you don't understand. No, God says in Romans 3.11, you don't understand. There is none that understandeth. Yeah, but I've done a lot of good good works in my life. Listen, Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, but we are all, but we are all as an unclean thing. And now watch this. And all... Our righteousnesses. This is, this is all of our good deeds and, and all of our good works and all of the things that we think go into our asset column with God. And God says that they're all, every one of them, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't get it. Well, here it is. What God is trying to show us is that our standing with Him is not something you achieve. It's something you receive. It's a gift. It's grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Listen, not of works lest any man should boast. And what Isaiah 64, 6 is, is trying to get us to see about our righteousnesses is, is that the, the more 
you try, the more works you try to produce apart from the gift of grace, the more sinful and wretched and filthy you become. Because you see, the more your pride vaunts itself, trying to convince you that because of all of, all of your righteousnesses, that you aren't really helpless. That you aren't really hopeless. And you see, the more you begin to think that you can make it to God apart from the gift of His Son. And God says, that is repulsive to me. It is absolutely repulsive. The more you try to work your way, the more you stink, God says. It's filthy rags. Listen, folks, if you could do something to bring you to God apart from from God's only begotten Son being butchered on that cross, listen, whatever that something is, that would have become the standard that God would have set and His only begotten, beloved Son wouldn't have been crucified. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ died on that cross because there wasn't something we could do. There wasn't some accumulation of things that we could do. Jesus Christ provided for us through His death on the cross the only thing, the only thing that could bring us to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, on the cross, Jesus Christ took every sin you and I have ever committed upon Himself and was literally made sin. And the reason He was doing that is because Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says that the wages or payment for sin is death. And on the cross, with all of our sins upon Him, Jesus Christ died our death. And He paid our penalty. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes on to tell us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And again, you see, it's not something you achieve. You don't achieve a righteous standing before God. You receive a righteous standing before God. Not based on your works, but based on the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And He does that work in us through His grace. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and Him alone. And folks, now, now listen listen very carefully. You've got to watch it, man, because man has a real hard time with grace. He has a, a real hard time keeping his dirty, stinking, filthy, rotten hands out of God's grace. So he starts wanting to do all kind of things and start adding all kinds of things to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He wants to throw in his baptism. He wants to throw in his catechism. He wants to throw in his church. He wants to throw in his ability to, to hold out faithful to the end. But do you see it, folks? If you add something anything. I don't care what it is. I don't care how religious it looks. I don't care how spiritual it appears to be to add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is to say that He did not do a finishing work and that is blasphemy. If it's Jesus plus 
anything. Do you see this? It's not grace. And if it's not grace, then it's not salvation. God's message to you. And if you're going to just boil it down into that simple little thing, God's message to you is a message of of grace. Jesus Christ took what He didn't deserve to give you what you could never deserve. Righteousness. A righteous standing before God. But that gift is not only a gift of grace, it is a gift of peace. And again, you see that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. Grace be unto you and, and peace. And again, the, the book of Revelation is a, is a book that deals with the very opposite of peace. It deals with bloodshed. It deals with strife and famine and pestilence and, and woe. It, it deals with tribulation that Jesus Christ himself said has never been on this planet. And there would never be a tribulation that would be like it after that. It deals with war in heaven. It deals with war on the earth. It it deals with beasts and dwelt by the devil coming against the people of God. In in, in the book of Revelation, thunders roll, lightning crashes, stars fall from heaven, plagues come up out of the earth, demons control human affairs, blood comes up, as we saw just a minute ago, to the horse's bridles, and yet the book begins again with the offer of something that you could never, ever, ever, ever have apart from God. Peace. Buddy, you come to the end of of, of the book and the storm clouds roll away. The the noise of, of war is stilled. The earth itself is purified by fire. God establishes a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells and where all is grace and peace forevermore. And you've got to understand that before all of that bloodshed and strife and all of those things that this book is all about, God's offer for you today is an offer of peace, of grace and peace. And notice further in verse, verse 4 of Revelation 1 that the offer of this grace and peace comes, first of all, from God the Father. Verse 4 says, Grace be unto you, and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Now, and someone says, Well, I I thought that was a reference to to Jesus there in in, in verse 4. No, verse 5 says, Look at it, and from Jesus Christ. So we know that verse 4 isn't describing him there. It's God the Father, and he's presented as the one who transcends all time. He is He which is, which of course is the present. He which was the past. And He which is to come, the future. And it's hard for our finite human minds to actually comprehend God transcending all of time. I mean, that's just a a mind-boggling kind of a thing. But the fact remains, he reads the past, he rides the present, and he rules the future. And yet, all at the same time. And, and I, I came across this, this, this quote that just, it, it, this is, you know, some, every once in a while, man grabs a hold of, of something that is just, you know, it's almost like your, your brain goes tilt 
You know, when, when you, you read this, and I, I want you to read this this quote. It's from Erwin A. Moon of Moody Institute of Science. And, and now I want you to think, what, what we're dealing with here is this God, God the Father, who transcends time. And, and, and look at this. All of us have looked up on a clear night and seen the sparkling, twinkling stars. But how many of us have realized that we cannot see the stars as they now are? Every time we look, we are looking into the past, seeing them as they were. This is on your study sheet, by the way. The nearest naked eye star, Alpha Centauri, is about four light years away. The most distant naked eye object, the Andromeda Galaxy, is about a million and a half light years away. This means that the light has been traveling four light years or over a million years to reach us. As a result, we are looking into the past. But this works both ways. If you were on one of the stars, you would, assuming an adequate telescope, see the Earth as it was sometime in the past. From the star Sirius, you could see, now watch this, this phrase, you could see what you are doing nine years ago. Because in a profoundly true scientific sense, you are still doing it. Yes, everything you have ever done, you are still doing. The ghost of your past haunts the universe. But remember, God is omnipresent. This means that for God, every sin you have ever committed, every evil thing you have ever done, you are still doing and will continue to do forever. Now, are you, are you following that? Once you get out of this realm of time with the past, present, and the future, what you've done, you're still doing, and what you haven't done, you've already done. Einstein, and we'll, we'll finish this, Einstein kind of came onto this deal, and Einstein was a guy that was too smart for his own good, uh, professing himself to be wise. He became a fool. But the guy, you know, with the whole theory of relativity and all of that deal, he, he did lock on to this, this same concept that this guy is talking about here. And, and he talked about how that when we speak, those sound waves continue on. And that if you could somehow get in some kind of a rocket ship that could take you and just jet you ahead in time, you could catch up with your words if you could have something that would be fast enough, you could catch up with Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And do you, do you see, from God's perspective, all of this is still going on. Every word that we've ever spoken is still being said. It's still there because He transcends time. He is He which is, which was, and is to come. And because He is that, because He's omnipresent, look at it again. Every evil thing you've done, you're still doing and will continue to do forever apart from God's forgiveness. Only the omnipotent, eternal God who controls all the factors of time, space, and matter could ever remove sin. And what's wild is here in verse 4, what you've got is the great, eternal God who dwells all at the same time in all tenses of time 
And what he does here is he majestically gathers the ages into his hand and he offers the gift of grace and peace to his fallen creation. Man, I'm telling you, what a God. But the gift of his grace and peace is is not offered just from God the Father, but from God the Holy Spirit. Look at the end of verse 4. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, Now check that out. Did you know that there were seven spirits of God? I mean, that's wild, isn't it? And this, it's not like this is just you know some, some fluke. Look over at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. So we learn this. There are seven spirits of God, and they are, according to Revelation 1, 4, before the throne. And look at chapter 4 of Revelation, in verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, and watch this now, which are the seven spirits of God. So, there are seven spirits of God, they are before the throne of God, and they take the appearance of seven lamps of fire that burn before the throne. And look at chapter 5 and verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, and here it comes again, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So put it together. There are seven spirits of God. They are the lamps of fire that burn before His throne, but not only that, they are His eyes. And those eyes, according to chapter 5 and verse 6, are sent forth into all the earth. And Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10 adds that those seven eyes run to and fro through the whole earth. And 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9 tells you, why those eyes are running to and fro throughout the whole earth and and what it is that they're actually looking for. It says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Here it is. To show Himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward Him. And again, remember, a perfect heart is not a standing you achieve. It's a standing you receive through His grace and His peace. And I want, you to, I want you to see something here. Do you understand? The Spirit of God, the eyes of God are running to and fro. And what they have done is they have made their way into this room this morning. And what they desire to do is to strengthen some of you here today by making you a recipient of this offer of the Spirit of God in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, a gift of His grace and, and peace. You say, well, okay, that, that's cool, but uh, I can't get off of this seven spirits thing. I mean, doesn't, doesn't Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 say there is one Spirit? And doesn't 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 say, for by 
one spirit? Are we all baptized into one body and have been all made to drink into one spirit? So what's, what's the deal? Are there really seven spirits of God? Well, we'll take you by way of uh, the screen here to another place in the Bible, and you can take your sheet and turn it over now, where God specifically identifies what they are. Isaiah chapter 11. And in Isaiah chapter 11, God lets us know that there, that there is only one Holy Spirit, but there is a sevenfold ministry that He has. Isaiah chapter 11 is all about the, the second coming of Jesus Christ as He establishes His rule uh, and reign upon the earth. And what Isaiah shows us is that when He comes, that He will be empowered by the sevenfold Spirit of God. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And of course, this is talking about the fact that that Christ or, or the Messiah would be coming out of David's family tree. David's father, of course, was, was Jesse. And verse 2 says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And this is the Spirit that we would refer to as the Holy Spirit. Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, or Jehovah. So that's the first one of the seven, the Spirit of the Lord. Verse 2 goes on with the, with the second, the Spirit of Wisdom. Number 3, the Spirit of Understanding. Number 4, the Spirit of Counsel. Number 5, the Spirit of Might. Number 6, the spirit of knowledge. And number seven, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And I think you can see already that there isn't any contradiction between whether there's you know, one spirit or, or seven, as we've already talked about uh, this morning. The number seven in the Bible is the number of completion and perfection. And the seven spirits mentioned in the book of Revelation and detailed here in Isaiah chapter 11 all come together to represent the completeness of the various functions or or ministries of the one Spirit of God and His absolute perfection as holy God. Now, Revelation chapter 1, again, the offer of grace and peace comes from God the Father. And do you see what God's doing here? He's wanting you to receive that grace and peace, but if you're ever going to get it, you've got to know who He is. I mean, that's paramount with God. You, you can't become a recipient without understanding who He is. So He's trying to show you right now who He is. God the Father, which transcends time. God the Holy Spirit, the seven eyes of the Lord that run to and fro, wanting to strengthen you today. And now, verse 5, and from God the Son. Verse 5 says, and from Jesus Christ, who is... And there's three things in verse 4 that God wants you to know about who He is. And these three things that he shows us correspond to his offices of prophet, priest, and king. First of all, he is called the faithful witness. And this, of course, is in reference to his ministry as a prophet. And what is a prophet? A prophet is one who who speaks the word of God. And that's what he did when he came to this planet during his earthly ministry. He came to be a witness to this dark and degenerate world, and he bore witness to several things. First of all, he bore witness to the character 
of God. To the character of God. Listen, everything that men need to know about God is revealed through Jesus Christ. Do you remember in in John chapter 14 and verse 8, Philip said to, to the Lord, Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. I mean, that's all we could ever want, is if you would just give us a glimpse of, of the Father. And you remember what Jesus said in, in verse 9? Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And verse 3 says that Christ is the brightness of His glory and the express image of of His person. You see, that's why Jesus could say in John chapter 8 and verse 18, I am one that bear witness of Myself, and the Father that sent Me beareth witness of Me. You see that? He is the Father in a visible form that you can look at. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, For in Him that is in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All you need to know about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, you find dwelling in Jesus Christ bodily. He's not just a God. He is the one and only true God who came to this earth in a human body. And Colossians 1.15 adds that He is the image of the invisible God. We couldn't see God So Jesus Christ came to this earth and bore witness to the Godhead. He is the image of the invisible God. But He bore witness to something else also. He bore witness to the exceeding sinfulness of sin. In the Old Testament, there is at least 15 different words to to show us sin in its various phases. In in Psalm 32 and verse 5, David uses three of those terms in in one verse. He said, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. But, But listen, we had all of these words to describe it all through the Old Testament. But listen, the full horror and exceeding sinfulness of sin wasn't revealed until Jesus Christ came. Because sin literally plowed His back and sin blindfolded Him and beat Him. And sin plucked out holy God's beard and crowned Him with thorns. Sin nailed His hands and His feet to a cross and and lifted Him up amongst the, the mockings and, and the blasphemies that man was pouring out. And you see, through the witness of Jesus, sin was unmasked. And really, for the first time, we were able to really see just how putrefying sin really is because we saw what sin did to the Lord of glory. And there's a third thing that Jesus bore witness to. And that, of course, is the Word of God. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 1 and verse 14, it says, And the Word, 
Okay, again, now remember, it was with God and it was God. And the Word was made flesh. And of course, this was in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why he said in John chapter 18 and verse 37, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. And what does John 17, 17 say? Thy Word is truth. He was the truth of God. The Word of God. And through His life, He faithfully bore witness to that fact. But, but notice the second thing about Christ from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Not only is He the faithful witness, but He is the first begotten of the dead. And this, of course, is in reference to His resurrection and corresponds to His office of priest, His priestly ministry. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, do you know what He did? He took our place. See, that's what a priest does. He stands in the place of another. He is an intercessor. But He didn't just die. Look at what it says. He is the first begotten of the dead. And notice the way it's worded. It didn't say that He was the first to be raised from the dead, because he certainly wasn't. There were people in the Old Testament who were raised from the dead. Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, raised at least three people uh, himself from the dead. But Jesus is the first begotten of the dead. That is, he is the first man that ever came up from the dead that didn't die again and never will. He didn't, you see, he didn't just die. He conquered death. He came up out of that grave victorious over sin and death and hell and the grave. But notice what it says. It says that He was the first begotten of the dead. Because you see, there have been millions and millions since His resurrection who have also been begotten of the dead. You know what? I'm one of those people. You you see, the Bible says in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, that I was dead in trespasses and sins. I was dead. But there came a day in my life where my eyes uh, opened to the truth of of what this book is all about, the message that God was trying to give to me through His book, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I did is I called upon His name to forgive me of my sin. I, I called upon Him and I asked Him to come to be the Lord of my life But you know what Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12 says was really taking place? What was happening as I was calling upon the name of the Lord is that spiritually I was being placed into Jesus Christ in His death and His burial. And what Colossians 2.12 says is that the same power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead bodily, He used that same exact power to raise me to, to, to new life spiritually in Jesus Christ. That's why Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3 says that my life is hid with Christ in God. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 11 and verse 26, And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. You see, you only die once. And I already died. 
And I've become uh, begotten of the dead. And now, hey, listen, you can, you can stop this body from functioning. You can come up here and you can fill it full of holes and, I mean, you can kill me or time may go on and my body will wear out. But you know what? I'll never die because I've already been raised from the dead in Jesus Christ. I'll just pass into another existence. And because He's the first begotten of the dead, you see, His, his priestly ministry still continues on. He took my place on that cross, but His priestly duties didn't stop there. They continue on. He's still interceding for us. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but with an all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But there's one other thing God wants you to know about Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Not only is He the faithful witness, not only is He the first begotten of the dead, He is the prince of the kings of the earth. And obviously this has reference to His office as king. And by the looks of things on this planet right now, it may not seem like it, but folks, He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15 says, listen, in His times He shall show who is the blessed and only potentate or prince, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8 says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under His feet. That is, God the Father has put all things in subjection under His feet. For in that He put all in subjection under Him, He left nothing that is not put under Him. But now, we see not yet all things put under Him. Now listen, they're all in subjection to Him. You just don't see it yet. But you will. And the book of Revelation foreshadows the complete fulfillment of that truth. So check this out. In Revelation, and we've just at this point, now the speed's going to pick up considerably here right now, but check this out. In one and a half verses, God gives you the most succinct and comprehensive description of who He is. What He gives you here is the fact that He is the eternal God who exists in three persons, and He lets you know in just one and a half verses, all of who He is and what it is that He wants to do in your life. What it, the gift that He wants to give to you. He wants to give you grace. And He wants to give you peace. But now let me, let me show you quickly the response God wants to receive from man. And if you'll ever receive His grace and peace, this must be your response to Him. And it is glory and dominion. Glory and dominion. Look at the end of verse 5. Unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father, to Him be glory 
and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know what? Um, There have been some people in the last several decades who have been very well-meaning people, been very zealous about God and and, and His message and, and all of that. But what these overzealous people have done, and I, I've been one of them, what, what these overzealous people have done is they've confused the issue of salvation. You, you see, because Romans chapter 9 verses, uh, <clears throat> Romans chapter 10 verses 9 through 13, it, it talks about the fact that we enter a, a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, and salvation is actually imparted to us as we pray a prayer of faith to the Lord where we're calling upon His name. And so there are some people who have gone all over the world and and maybe on your doorstep, and, and what their whole goal in life was was to get you to say those words of a prayer calling upon the name of the Lord as if God was you know, up in heaven sitting on the edge of His, his throne with, with bated breath just hoping that, that somebody down there might say the correct words of the prayer like they were a magic formula. You know? And when they say the, the correct words and they use the correct terminology of, of, of a prayer, then all of a sudden in heaven after they've said it, you know, bells and whistles go off and ding, 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 you know, all the splash and God says, and Gabriel, tell them what they want. No. God isn't looking for, for some magic formula to be spoken from your mouth so that He can take you to, to heaven someday. And you see, a lot of you have, have refused this whole offer of God's salvation because that just never has made any sense to you. But what you've got to understand is that is a confusion of the issue of salvation. What God has always been looking for, what God has always been looking for is a place for His name to dwell. You can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, and you find way back there, God was letting man know, that's, that's the issue. That's what I'm after. And what is the most incredible thing in all the world, folks? And, I, and man, I hope this sinks into you. What is so incredible is that of all of the places in this vast, infinite universe where His name could dwell, He wants that place to be inside of you. But you see, as long as self is seated on the throne of your life, and as long as you are exercising dominion, over your own little kingdom, and you rule your life, and your life is lived for you and for your glory, it can't happen. And there's a lot of people who have prayed nice-sounding words to God in a prayer who have never had that kind of a change of heart. Listen, what He wants to do in your life is make your heart His throne so that He can come in and change your heart so He can receive glory from your life and He can begin to exercise dominion in your life. And folks, listen. That's what life is all about right there. The Lord Jesus Christ taking dominion, taking the rulership of your life and giving glory to Himself through your life. That's, and that's what salvation 
is. Jude capsulized it for us at the end of his short book, Jude chapter 1, verse 25. It says, To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. And look at verses 5 and 6 of Revelation chapter 1 again. He gives three reasons that the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of receiving all glory and dominion from our lives. First of all, because He loved us. Verse 5 says that this glory and dominion is unto Him that loved us. You've heard it all your life, but listen, there's no greater truth in all the world than John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And listen, if you want to know why God is worthy of receiving glory and dominion in your life, you know what? You don't need to search any deeper than that. In all of your sin, He still loves you. But Jesus didn't just get a goosebump. He didn't just say, oh, I love you, man. He did something. He did something about that love that makes Him worthy of glory and dominion. The end of verse 5 says, He washed us. He washed us from our sins in His own blood. And notice the fact that, that He loved us before He washed us from our sins. That's why Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And notice the way that the Lord words it here in, in verse 5. He washed us. He washed us. See, He uses that word because sin is a stain that is upon the soul of every single one of us. It's a stain. And it doesn't come out. There's nothing you can do that can ever get out the stain of sin upon your life. The only way that it can be removed is blood. But notice how carefully it's worded. It doesn't say, and washed us from our sins with His blood. What does it say? In his blood. I mean, we, we don't just wipe it on us. We, we don't just sprinkle that blood on us. We are immersed in it. And it's the picture that is demonstrated through water baptism. Water baptism doesn't save you. What it does is it pictures the fact that you have been immersed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and notice that it's not just any blood, it is his own blood. In order to get the spot and stain of sin off of your sinful soul, it had to be the blood of God. It couldn't be the blood of animals. It couldn't be the blood of a God. It had to be the blood of the God. So He loved us. He washed us. And now a third reason that He is worthy of the glory and dominion in your life, and that is He has exalted us. Verse 6 says, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. And of course, this is in reference to the future aspect of our relationship with God. The fact that one day we will rule 
and reign with Him. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10 says, And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 20, and verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with Him a thousand years. And you see, some of you say, "Well, I'll tell you what. I've got too much life to live. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this getting saved thing because all it's going to do is ruin my life. I won't be able to do all the things that I want to do. Uh, I ain't going to give Him the glory and, and dominion." You know what? You don't understand. You don't understand the shortness of time. And you don't understand the length of eternity. You can never make that statement and understand just how short time really is and how long eternity really is. And the fact, and listen, that when you allow the Holy Lord God of heaven and earth to lavish His love upon you by washing you from your sins in His own blood, you know what He does? He promises to share His glory and dominion with you. But you see, when you, when you hold on to it now, enjoy it. Because you're going to lose it. But you give it to Him now, and you'll have it for all eternity. And here's his message. I mean, just, you just start wrapping this whole thing up. He, he loves us. And he wants to give us the gift of his grace. And listen, it's free to you because it was purchased for you at great cost to him. He purchased it with his own blood. And if you'll let him, he'll wash you in that blood and cleanse you of the stain of sin that separates you from him. And for the first time in your life, you'll experience His peace. Peace with God. The peace of God. And the Bible says that that is a peace that passes all understanding. And when it becomes yours, when you come as a sinner to His cross, surrendering your will to His Lordship, Turning from all of, of, of your your own way and, and your own doing, and and you give to him dominion in your life. What he does is he takes your life and he begins to use it to glorify himself. And for the first time in your life, you find out that there is a reason to get up in the morning. Something that transcends just going through life. And we're going to get into the exposition of verses 7 and 8 next week, but you need to be reminded of something before you just pass all of this off this morning. And that is that our glorious Lord and and Savior Jesus Christ, who is just majestically described in verse 8, He is coming back to this earth in verse 7. Look, behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him. And they also which pierced Him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. 
You know what God's saying to you? Listen, I have an offer of grace and peace that comes from the full Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it becomes yours when you'll surrender your life and allow Him to have dominion in your life so that He can be glorified in your life. And if you want to throw your nose up at that and say, I don't think I'm real interested in that, He said, no, just remember, I'm coming back. And all that stuff in the book of Revelation that is the exact opposite of grace, which is the exact opposite of peace, when that begins to overflow onto your life, what it says is you will wail with every other person on this planet who rejects that offer. A lot of tough people in the world. You know what? Just nothing tough about some guy wailing. And and I don't think I don't think that I could mimic the way the kindreds of the earth will wail on that day. Because reality and eternity has set in. Man, what a what an unbelievable passage. I mean, those of you that have been around for a while, I mean, it, did he not cover it on, on every s- single cylinder there was? Everything that you need to know about God, it's there. Everything you need to know about what he did. Everything you need to know about you. Everything you know about need to know about what he's going to do. It, it's all there. But the real message is he wants to do something in your life right now. He wants you to become his child. And that can happen for you if you'll just surrender that will to Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? This morning, if as we've gone through this, this very basic, simple passage, if God has used this this morning to open your eyes to to who He is and what He's done, what He wants to do in your life today, and you would like to be a recipient of His grace and mercy that will result in His peace on your life. At the conclusion of our our service today, uh, up on your left and and your right at the the front of, uh, of this room, Our pastors are going to position themselves there for you. And if the Lord is speaking to your heart today, then I'd like to ask you, I know that you've certainly got things you've got to do, and maybe you've got kids in another part of the building and all that. Listen, there's nothing more important right now if the God of this universe is speaking to you. Stop. Look. And listen to what He's saying to you and respond with the response that He's looking for. The response of surrender. And that can begin for you today.